0: 2 and 3 of Revelation, Uh, we see seven letters to seven churches. Hopefully I've got it there on the... Do we have it on the slides for this? Uh, Yes. Are my slides there? No, they might have just been put on at 7.30, were they? Okay, that's all right. That's... Ah, don't worry. I'll go on. Yeah, while you're doing it, but that's all right. Hey, look... Smyrna is a church and uh, it's not mentioned in the New Testament apart from in Revelation Paul doesn't write about it uh, it's about maybe twenty or thirty kilometers north of Ephesus and it was an important city and it was a had a great port and obviously there was a church that was planted either Paul's planted it or it's a what's called a second or third generation plant from a plant from a plant uh, and there's only two letters in these seven letters to these seven churches uh, where Jesus neither rebukes or calls the church to repentance. And and this is one of them. And so this is a healthy church. Now you could say that the church at Smyrna is a case study for us on what a healthy church looks like. Um, it has these marks of a healthy church so let me list them for you because I think if we can list them then we can see where we're at and then we can see maybe what we need to aim for so number one mark of a healthy church uh, verse nine. Oh, there we go you can see that but just sorry back to this there we the Smyrna persecuted church just here uh, Ephesus just here and so the gospels come out around here churches are planted and that's where we're at today so here are the marks of a healthy here are the marks of a healthy church. Verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Okay, first mark, number one, afflictions. And poverty. It's a nice mark. Church. Excellent. You'll get these in any church growth book, by the way. Number two, verse nine. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Slander. People will say lies and bad things about you. Healthy church. Number three. Third Mark, verse 10. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Excellent. We'll have the devil and jail. Devil and Prison. Prison fellowship doesn't count, man. Number four, verse 10 again. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. So, persecution. Oops, number four, persecution. Uh, For 10 days... That might be wearing a mask for 10 days. (laughs) Number four, that's persecution. Number four, the fourth mark of a healthy church uh, is... Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death. So, possibility of dying. Five marks of a healthy church. So it's logical that we copy these five marks. I've got a plan for mark number one, afflictions and poverty. Now, I haven't talked to... I think it's good, Um, and I'm sure they're going to be on board, And uh, even though I have absolutely no say in how this church runs. But nonetheless, what I thought would be a good idea is if we stood out here on the roundabout at the front of a church here, which is Marmion and Napier. It's only here for five years. (laughs) Marmion and Napier. We'll stand at the front there, and we'll get a 24-hour, seven-day thing going, where we'll chant something that will really encourage our, our local community to hate us, and so I thought we'd have something like this, rich people sell all, come follow me, Jesus. I thought we could do that. I was going to have all rich people go to hell, but I thought, I don't believe that by the way, but I thought that would be a little bit provocative, but I think we could start with, we could start with that, and I think affliction will happen. Now, it'll probably happen from within the church. Actually, more than from without. But anyway, I know there's some of you who would do it. So let's... We could do that. That'll be the affliction part. And then secondly, for the poor poverty part... Oh, you're going to love this. For the poverty part, let's give 90% of our income, your personal income, not the church's income. uh, Well, how about you give it to me and I'll make sure it gets to the common, I promise. No, let's... Let's give 90% of your income to the church. Even the poorest person sitting here, 90% of your income is about, it still puts you in, I don't know, the top 10% of wealthy people in the world. And so let's give, let's give this money to all those people who are dying in northern India at the moment. Uh, no one's got an excuse. Even Kiran, you've got to, ministers, you're all in. You've got to do it. So that should take care of the affliction and then that should make us pretty poor. That will do the first mark. That's the first one. Shall I go on? I'll get to the slander maybe. Look, that's pretty stupid really. I don't really believe that, of course. And we're going to unpack why later in this sermon. But what I wanted to do now is just look at two ways that we deal with suffering from persecution. Two ways. And then I just want to have an, uh, finish it off by having an answer that helps us deal with, deal with suffering from persecution. So two ways we deal with suffering from persecution, and they're both pretty unhealthy, and also then look at the answer that helps us deal with suffering from persecution. John Stott. John Stott, the great uh, evangelical theologian of the 20th century, who would have turned a 100 last Tuesday... Uh, died 10 years ago, Uh, he wrote this. If the mark of a true and living church is love, the second is suffering. The one is naturally consequent on the other. A willingness to suffer from opposition proves the genuineness of love. A willingness to suffer from opposition proves the genuineness of love. Love. Well, we want to be a church who's genuine in love. Well, in some way, we need to be willing to suffer because of opposition to be genuinely loving. But how do we do that? We're people of flesh, we shrink from suffering when it comes to persecution. And so we compromise. The most product- productive way to avoid suffering is to not preach the gospel. Nothing provokes the world's opposition more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel emphasises, part of the gospel emphasises un palatable doctrines such as the gravity of human sin and guilt, the reality of God's wrath and judgment, the impossibility of self-salvation, the necessity of the cross, the freeness of eternal life, and the dangers of eternal death. These Truths undermine human pride and will always, in and out of the church, arouse human opposition. We don't want human opposition, so we are always tempted not to talk about these unpalatable doctrines. And Jesus' moral standards are totally offensive as well to this postmodern culture that we find ourselves living in today in 2021. Honesty in business, no sex outside of heterosexual marriage, self-control and self-sacrifice, loving your enemy, I could go on, they're offensive. If the church, I love this quote, if the church were to maintain such standards, it would find itself where it really belongs, outside the gates of the city, in the wilderness, where Jesus himself was killed. Outside the gates. Outside the gates, if you follow Jesus, that's where you'll end up. Not inside, outside. You'll be rejected. You'll suffer. You'll be persecuted. See, the world wants a Christianity that mirrors its values and not the true message of Christianity. That says, that says in the one breath, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believed. Yet, at the same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever, ever dared hoped. This is an offensive message to a world who says that we are good and our problem is we need to love ourselves more and realise how good we are and try harder. That's what we're told in culture. That is deep down in us as well. We might not know we believe it, but that's what we hear and read and any self-help book will tell you that. Uh, Richard Verbrand was a nominal Jew converted in Romania uh, by a Roman carpenter. Not Roman carpenter, a Romanian carpenter. He was ordained as an Anglican priest and then ordained as a, a Lutheran pastor, and in 1948 he was captured by the Romanian Communist Party. And he spent three years in solitary confinement, 12 feet underground in a cell about 10 feet by 5 feet or something. Uh, With no light, there was no sound because even the guards wore felt on the soles of their shoes. So he heard nothing and saw nothing for three years. During his uh, imprisonment, he had two lots of imprisonment, tallied 16 years or so. He was beaten and tortured. Physical torture included uh, mutilation, burning and being locked in a large frozen ice block. Some of the things actually are just too horrendous and inhumane for me to actually tell you today. But read up on it if you like. He had his feet beaten until the flesh of his soles were torn off. And then the next day, beaten again to the bone, he claimed there were no words to describe his pain. He would have to stand in a closet which had uh, nails, like these 12-inch nails sitting out of them that were only like five centimetres from his body for uh, 48 to 72 hours. And so if he fell asleep, he'd just wake up with the, the nails going into him. While they played over the audio to him, Jesus and Christianity is stupid. Communism is great. Uh, early in the in the regime, they gathered up all the pastors in Romania. Now, this is the army. They gathered up all the pastors in Romania, and they called by called each one in front of every, all the other pastors, one by one, to affirm their belief in con- communism and the government and to deny, deny the lordship of Jesus. And when it got around to Richard Verbrand, he looked to his wife and he said, if I say what I really think here, you're never going to see me again. And she turned to him and said, I don't need a coward for a husband, and he said, when she said that, I turned to Jesus. I turned my eyes to Jesus. There's no compromise. Friends, the fear of the world has ensnared us. Our desire to dilute the gospel and to lower our standards is to not give offense. That's what we try to do. But the bottom line is, we love the praise of our fellow man more than the praise of the glory of God. We lose the gospel and we ultimately lose salvation. And we end up just having a message that's the same as the world. You're great, try harder. That doesn't work when you're 12 feet under the ground in darkness because it's a false gospel. It's not true, it's a lie. And 99% of our self help books, I'm sure there's good stuff, I've benefited from them, but that's what they do, and then they just replace one idol for another. You're not doing well in here, try harder in this. And that enslaves you, and then you just try harder in the next thing. A huge percentage of our churches teach this implicitly and explicitly. It's a teaching that elevates humans into the place of God, and that never ends well. Just read your Bibles, it's Genesis 3. either ends in dismal failure because you can't achieve greatness and hopelessness um, or arrogance in victory because you think you are great. We think we are special. Friends, the second mistake that we do when seeking opposition, I know we are people of flesh and I know we shrink from opposition. I do often... But we don't always. We don't always. Earlier I gave a pretty crude example of ways of firing up persecution. But seeking opposition and suffering and persecution nearly always has reasons that are far deeper and more nuanced and sophisticated than just wanting to have a fight or being a sadist. I can see three reasons why we might seek out opposition and persecution. I'm sure there are plenty more, but here's just three. Number one, we can believe that God will love us more and we will appease his anger with us if we are persecuted. Number two, people love us when they see and hear of opposition that we're faced for the gospel, and we love the praise and acclamation of man i 'm really guilty i 've got stories I'm sure you do too. I love the praise. love it if you love me. Number three, we feel a deep sense of guilt now this is an interesting one. We feel a deep sense of guilt for others for others suffering, which is a good thing. but then we think suffering ourselves will bring atonement for our guilt uh, john John Bond who uh, works with the Church of Christ in Perth, uh, but has been a church planter across the world and a quipper of ministers across the world. And I found out the other day that Cheryl said when she was about 22, he spoke somewhere in rural Queensland, and she said that was one of the greatest talks she's ever heard. He just lives in Melville. Um, He's quite an amazing man. But he talked about with me last week, because I'm in a prayer Group with him with the pastors of Melville, and he shared. Um, the only time that he suffered deep culture shock was after working uh, after working in another country was when he was in South or Southern Sudan, uh, where the results of their civil war and massacre, where innocent families uh, were brutally persecuted, resulted in John having waves of guilt for what was happening there. Waves of guilt because the only suffering he said that he had in Perth was for how long he had to wait on a red light until a green light here in Perth, They're ridiculously long. We get that, don't we? That's our persecution, that's about the hardest, hardest thing I have to suffer with. So the question that he was wrestling with was how could he justify living in such a prosperity and peace when torture, rape mutilation and killing of families was ruling in Sudan and so he was talking to his friend back in in Sudan and shared with him his guilt of not suffering in Australia and he shared his deep pain that he felt for the Sudan people and told his friends told his friends of the willingness to sell up everything in Australia and move to Sudan whatever it took he said to remove my own guilt and the suffering of the guilt John was prepared to what I call "white knuckle it." Hate the suffering, but just do it." That was his mantra. All this so his pain could be healed. Now, actually going to the Sudan and doing that work isn't in and of itself not a bad thing. It's a great thing. If that's the calling on your life, of course it's good. But what was going on in John's heart? He said he wanted to, he wanted to bring on the suffering so he could feel better about himself and therefore appease the suffering of guilt. He says this, I quote him, I looked to myself and not Jesus for healing. I didn't see how he had suffered more for me, so I didn't have to and I could bless others even in suffering. It was still me trying to save people. He's a 70-year-old pastor. He still didn't get it. See, some of the fruits of seeking opposition is arrogance and pride. When we seek suffering and opposition, uh, we, we don't get the recognition for it. We're very good at making people feel bad about themselves. We scapegoat them and show them how unholy they are because they don't suffer like us. I could work in the slums of India and I could come back here and when visiting St. Philip's I could say terrible things if I wanted Your annual budget for your water that keeps your verge green would probably feed 10 families in India. I don't know. I could say whatever it is to really drive the knife in. You could do it with me, living in Melville. Pretty wealthy guy, really, as a minister. I mean, the top 1% of wealthy ministers in the world, really. They do well. You know, I could feel really good about myself and make you feel bad, And thank God that I'm not like the Cottesloe Christians. I think Jesus might have said a parable about that. Thank God I'm not like that tax collector over there. But it wouldn't last long. That feeling of superiority, it wouldn't last long... I would have to go back to India to suppress my guilt because my appetite for not uh, feeling guilty and feeling superior is insatiable and I need to fill it up all the time and so the very thing that makes me feel better actually captures me and I have to go back again and again and again and get more hurt and more hurt and more hurt and suffer more so I can feel better about myself. Some people would see me as a hero, but in my heart, it's just another way of self-salvation. For my heart, our hearts are made not to feel guilty, but accepted and loved, ultimately. I'm not saying that having guilt's not a bad thing at times. You need it. it's a good, can be a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But ultimately, our hearts yearn for love and acceptance. This is what our hearts yearn for. Acceptance and love. So let's answer, let's look at some answers for dealing with suffering from persecution. How do we get that healing in love? Here is what another commentator writes. He says, this letter to the church in Smyrna may seem like it is about suffering and persecution, but it becomes clear the suffering and persecution are just a stage built for the enactment of the drama that displays the worth of Christ. Isn't that beautiful it becomes clear all of a sudden, the cloud rises, the mist moves away. the drama displays the worth of Christ that 's the answer it 's about the worth of Christ's. christ 's Christ. How do we get healing? We see the worth of Christ. And I just wanted to touch on three attributes in our passage that shows us the worth of Christ. First attribute that shows the worth of Christ is is in uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus is bigger than death itself. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came alive again. He is the first and last. There's depth here that we can not plumb. Think back as far as you can go, and Jesus was there before all of that. He is the last. Nothing will endure longer than Jesus. Jesus is explicitly claiming divinity here. Who died and came to life again. That means that death has no power over him. He is bigger than death itself. Second attribute that shows the worth of Christ is also in verse 9. Jesus knows his people's suffering. I know. This is the one who's done everything. I know your afflictions and your poverty. One of the most discouraging effects of suffering through persecution is that we feel alone. What could be more comforting... And to know that the one who knows all, defeated death, knows your suffering. Jesus knows it. Actually, he knows it far more than you know it. Because he suffered way beyond anything any person ever has. And he did it not just to save you, but to adopt you as his child. Not just to make you right and clean, but to bring you into a family. He has claimed you as his son and daughter. He has given you a sonship and a daughtership that can never be taken, no matter whether you're 12 feet under the ground or 12 feet above. And the third attribute that shows the worth of Christ is that Jesus promises eternal life. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown, the one who was first and last, the one who died on the cross, the one who rose from the grave. Death could not defeat him. Satan couldn't handle him. He rose and he says, when you die, I will give you a crown. And he whispers in your ear that you're not alone. Friends, just to finish, some of you have suffered because of persecution greatly for following Jesus. Married to non Christians who have never made it easy for you, lost jobs, had to give up jobs, lost friends and families, not got married because of your faith, got out of marriages because of your faith. On and on it can go. Just hurt. Just hurt, misunderstood, mocked and laughed at, looked at being the stupid person in the room. Let me encourage you. He is with you. And when you pass from this life to the next, he'll be waiting to place the crown of life on your head, the gentle, scarred hands of the Saviour who welcomes you into eternity as Richard Verbrand when he passed in 2001 you would have felt the hands of the scarred saviour placing the crown on his head and so with Paul we can say this for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. That's what he's done for you and for me. Amen.